All right, we'll just do it in reverse, that's all. We'll have it in reverse. Okay, now, the parsha begins, Shlach Ucho Anoshim V'yosuru Es Eretz Kenan. V'yosuru, the word to be tore, literally means to scout out, to go through the land and to look out, similar to the word tourist, to tour the land. V'yosuru Es Eretz Kenan. And the, um, if you look throughout the Parsha, if you take a look at uh, page 369, the next Pasuk, and it goes on throughout the Parsha to refer to them as Torah. If you look on Pasuk Chofal by, by Shani, Vayalu Vayosuru Esoretz. All throughout. What is it, when you say Vayetor, what does it mean? To scout out the land. We'll see in a second what, what this stuff means. Let's let's take a look at the word. If you look on page 370, Vayoshuvu Mitur Horetz. They came back from touring the land. Top of the page, right? And they were always, in fact, even later on after they sinned, if you look later on, Pasuk Lamed Days, Vayotziu Dibas Ho'oretz Asher Toru also. They brought out the evil of the land, the bad words of the land, Asher Toru also. Again, it says Toru. And when they said, Ho'oretz Asher Ovanu Losur also, they refer to it the same way. And again, and we have those were the two survivors in any case the common term that's used for them which is miraglim and everyone's familiar with the term miraglim and it's used constantly nowhere is this in this parsha are these miraglim identified as such as Miraglan. Nowhere does it use in connection with them as Miraglan. It's always used a totally different term. In fact, the, the only time you will find the word in reference to these people as being used as Miraglan or a derivative thereof is only one time. And that's in Parshas Devarim. Let me find it for you. It's in Parshas Devarim. By Shlishi, it says, that's the way they initiated. They wanted to have Miraglin. And I sent out 12 people. And if you look at Pasek Chov Dalit, that's the closest you're going to find. Vayifnu Vayalu Hohora, Vayavoa Nachal Eshko. They came to the, to the stream of Eshko, Vayiraglu Osa. And they were Miraglin. That's it. That's all you get the word Miraglin. What does that word mean? Miraglum. They spied it out. Whatever you want to translate the word Miraglum to mean, that's what it means over there. That's the only place Miraglum is used in reference to these people. Why isn't that good enough? It's good enough, but I just showed you 15 other places that they're not referred to as that. And one word that's close to it, all of a sudden you're latching on to that to refer to them as Miraglum forever and ever. And you do want to find the word Miraglum used quite a number of times in reference to people you will find it. And that's going to be in Parshas Miketz. Let's go back to Miketz. 
in Parshas Miketz, uh, you're so smart here. Right? Right. So you, fine, you looked over here and you no, cheated. Yeah, no. well, no. You, Yosef's brothers come to Egypt, and Yosef is the viceroy. Page 103, Pasuk oh, Tess, in the case. By Yisgar Yosef, as a chalom, as a shecholom, he remembers the dreams. By Yom Raleh, meraglim atem. You guys are meraglim. Liros is ervas ha'oretz bosem. You've come to look for the nakedness of the land. And what do they say in Pasuk Yudalaf? Kulonu b'nei yishechot nachnu. We are sons of one man. Kenim anachnu. We're okay, fellows. Lo hoyu avodecha meraglim. We are not Miraglin. Vayomer Aleinu. Yosef says, "No, Loki. Erbas arts bossim. You're spies to spy out the nakedness of the land." And again, they go to try to deny it. And again, Pasuk Yudal. Vayomer Aleinu. Yosef, who asher dibarti Aleichem leimar Miraglin matem. You guys are Miraglin. Bezos tibochenu. Bring me your younger brother, and that'll show that you are that you are okay. And page 104, top line. If not, lochei paro ki miraglimatem. You're miraglim. And he goes, he goes ahead, and um, even when they come back to their father, if you look in um, the bottom of the page, by Yavol Yaakov of Bia Marzakan, they come back by Yagidu, let's call a chorus of some lane where they go back and they tell them all of the events that happened and they said, ah, we don't know what's going on here. The master of the land, he spoke very harshly regarding us. And top of page 105, and he identified us as being Miraglim. And we said to him, no, we're not Miraglim. Well, okay. Again, so the word Miraglim, which is common on everybody's lips, is totally misidentified. In Parsha's Miketz, you have it about eight times. Whereas in Parsha's Shalach, which is the Parsha that the whole world identifies and talks about as Miraglim, it's not mentioned even one time. And even in Devarim, it's only one time an associated word is used. Yet we refer to them as Miraglim. Whereas the Torah seems to refer to them as Torim, as their mission is not being Miraglim. By the way, the mission of spying is Miraglim. You'll get it to Haftarim. Yoshua sent to Miraglim, and that didn't turn into a disaster. This episode of the Miraglim, which is the lowest point, in the entire sojourn in the wilderness. It's the low point of all the 40 years because this is when the decree was given that they should wander in the wilderness for 40 years as a result of this sin. This is the day that was Tishabah, the very first Tishabah in history, where Hashem already said this will become a cause of Tishabah for all time. So to this day, we have Tishabah on account of that very first Tishabah that resulted from the night that they people cried when the Miraglim came back. It's all on account of the episode of the Miraglim, the low point of Jewish history, the first and forever Tishabah that resulted from this. That's Miraglim. Yet they're not called Miraglim. We refer to this as the low point, and the parish is identified with it. If you're looking for the word Miraglim, you're going to find it in Parsha's Bikates. 
with the brothers. It's very interesting. Yeah. Especially since we're not wrong to mis, mis- to, uh, in terms of the way we identify them. We're not misidentifying them when we call them Aragon. It's just interesting that nowhere is it mentioned in the Torah identifying it that way. Yet we know that with Miraglam, it's accusing them of. You're looking for the nakedness of the land, you're looking for the weak points, you're being spies. Now, what's interesting... Well, the word, that's what they're identified with. They seem to be called Losur Esaurus. We have to now differentiate then between the word Tor or Torim and Miraglam. Furthermore, furthermore, the word miraglim, in terms of Rashi, now let's take a look at the very first Rashi. He refers to them, Loma Nismucha Parshas Miraglim to Parshas Miriam. Why is the parish of Miraglim begun right after the parish of Miriam? To teach us that these wicked people spoke Lashon Hara when they should have learned their lesson to have not spoken Lashonar. So he's called Miraglim. But another interesting place where we find the word Miraglim used, although we wouldn't expect it. So far I've been telling you that you've been all expecting the word Miraglim to be used, and you're all wrong, it wasn't used. But now I'll show you a place where the word Miraglim is used, and you really don't expect it to be used whatsoever. If you look at the end of the parsha, the parsha of Tzitzis, page 376, Three lines from the bottom. Page 376. Vohoyolochem litzitzis. You shall see your tzitzis. The blue thread at least. Uzchartem is called mitzvah Hashem. Let it remind you of all of the mitzvahs. Vasisem You will perform them. Vlosasuru achrei levavchem vachrei eneichem asheratem zonem achreim. You shall not stray and follow after your heart after your eyes that you are led astray by them constantly says Rashi what does it mean Lososuru? if you look on the second column of Rashi right in the middle of the column Rashi says the word Lososuru is similar to the word we just got done speaking about it great what, what does this mean what does that mean? Then Rashi says, the heart and the eyes, they're the miraculum of your body. Very strange way to identify it. The eyes and the heart, they're your personal miraculum. They're like, uh, they're like intermediaries that they like try to get you to do affairs. They, they, they try to sell you on affairs. Ho'ain roa the eye sees, v'alev chomei the heart lusts, v'akufai says averes then gets you to do the averes. So the eyes and the heart are like your personal miraglim. They're the ones that get you to do all the bad things. But here you're calling them miraglim. In other words, Rashi is kind of explaining how the, in the beginning of the parsha and the end of the parsha come together. That the heart and the eyes of the parsha of Tzitzis are very related to the parsha of Miraglim. And he also says, Losasuru, like Tur Ho'orets. Okay, we have to explain all of the above. But now you have the Kasha, right? You have the Kasha, everybody has the Kasha. What does 
There's no miracle anywhere in the Pasha. Be the first to go home to your communities and be the first person on your block to know that everybody knows Miraglim it's not in this week's Pasha. Nowhere. It's not in the Chumash, not in the Torah. The Haftorah you will find Miraglim. If you look at the first line of the Haftorah by Yishlach Yoshua Benum Nashitim Shnaim Anoshim Two men Miraglim Cheresh quietly, surreptitiously. And they're called Miraglim. And those were the good Miraglim. And we know Yosef is identified in Miraglim. They're not Miraglim. And Miraglim is always a pejorative. And that's why Rashi says, your heart and your eyes are Miraglim. Miraglim is always a pejorative. You missed it? Good. You'll pick it up. You're a smart fellow. What is the difference between Basur Esho'aretz and Miraglim? So, the mountain has a beautiful exposition exactly what the mission was and the like. It's unfortunate we don't have time to go into it, but in terms of pshat, to understand what the mission was, what they were supposed to do and where they messed up, it's Kedai to learn the Malu. We're not going to. I just have a briefer version of, what the, of, of the essence of this concept taken from the Sefer, Haksav HaKabola, on the top right. The mission, it, what it boils down to in a nutshell is this. They were never sent as Miraglim. They were sent as Torim, but they came back Miraglim. The Torah doesn't identify them quite that way, but that's the essence of what it is. What's the difference between a Tor and a Miraglim? So let's take a look at the Ksavah Kabbalah. Yesh Hevdil, top right. Bein Tor le Miraglim. The difference is the following. The word Tor, like the word tourist, he's a guy going around the land, he's scouting things out, he's looking for the good. His eyes are to find the good. To look the good, to look for Menucha, to find a place to rest. Usually that's what scouts are. If you want to differentiate between a scout and a spy, the scout is looking for the good places where the encampment could encamp. And the word is used throughout the Torah to mean that. To find you, to scout out a good place to encamp. Even in the context of means don't look for the luxuries. Your eyes, in this sense, are like your tourists. They're looking for the good for the rest of you. But don't follow what your eyes and heart tell you is good. That's the whole point. Don't be misled to follow what your eyes and heart tell you to be good. That's bad. What your eyes and heart tell you that is good in their eyes is a miracle. They're not torn, they're miracle. That's, that's the essence of the Pesach. The word zonim and losasuru Translate. I don't know if anybody's in the translation in the art school here. I'm not sure how they would translate it. But they both essentially mean the same thing. Don't go astray after your heart. Don't be led astray after your heart and eyes that lead you astray. But losasuru, in a way, has a more positive meaning, whereas the word zona, to be led astray, in the word zona, is a kind of a negative. The woman that strays is a zona. A promiscuous woman is called a zona. 
Don't let your eyes and heart be the, the scouts, because as Rashi says afterwards, they're not scouts, they're your miracle. You think they're your scouts. That's the essence of that pasuk. Says Rashi, Then Rashi says, They're the miracle. So the difference between a Torah and a miracle is in a nutshell. The Torah is looking for the good of something, the positive aspects. The miracle is looking for something bad. That's how you conquer a land. So the scouts are looking to find a place to rest and to search out the good. The miracle is looking for the bad to search out the weakest points and the lowest points and they're looking for evil. And the truth is in this one Pusik, you have the entire last week's drasha that we spoke about, plus what we're speaking about now, and the essence of what happened in Jewish history. Take a look at this one Pusik, Lamed Gimel. Vayisu Hashem. They left the mountain of God, Derech Shloshes Yomim, and they were traveling, traveling. God wanted to get them into Israel as quickly as possible. And then comes whole downward spiral. You have the inverted nuns immediately after this to break between the, the, the downward spiral. But what does it say? They left Har Hashem, and as we said, that's not a good way. They left Kitino Kaboreach. But what happens? The Baron Bris Hashem, the Orna Kodesh, Nosea name is traveling before them. Derech Shloshes Yomim, Losur Lohem Menucha find out a good place to rest to a camp. It's a good place to go to is for the good. Da'aron bris Hashem, Lassur lemenucha. So the word tar is to look out for the good. Scouting the good. Now, that just proves that point. Ubehepach. Let's go back to the Haksav HaKabal, three lines from the top. Hamiragel, the one who's a miragel, Yivakesh is looking for the evil. As Yosef accused his brothers. You guys are miraglim. Liros is ervas You're out to look for the bad. He's bringing the places from Nach. Evil. Cases of where the word miragel is used, it means to uncover the shame, to uncover the bad, to give out bad reports. Barah. Now, he named Moshe Rabbeinu. If you look at the mission, you see very, very clearly in the mission, it was never meant to be spies. He sends 12 people of the most distinguished members of Klan Yisrael, each one representing a tribe. That's not for the purpose of a mirago. A mirago, you always send unknowns. Yehoshua's mirago were never identified because they're anonymous people. The mirago spies are cloak and dagger. They work undercover. You don't send a whole delegation of 12. You never send a delegation of 12 spies, of 12 diplomats, of leaders. That's the idea of spying? No, no. You send one, two, three unknown cloak and dagger operatives and they surreptitiously spy things out. The miraculum of Yeshua were two 
We don't even know who they were. They were never identified, and so it should be. They're not meant to be identified. They're spies. That's what they are. What are spies? All of a sudden, Moshe is saying, we're going to send Anoshim, Chashuvim, Nesiyim, Roshim, B'nai Yisrael, one per tribe to represent them. Twelve. These are spies? Obviously not. They're there to bring back a report to the B'nai Yisrael, Losurasaurus. Since the Jews were, at this point, the B'nai Yisrael, were seemingly not confident and secure as to how good the land is, Moshe wanted to fortify them. He wanted them to feel more confident, more secure in how good the land is. And if you look throughout the parsha, I don't want to go through because I don't want to spend too much time on this. I'd like to go a little bit weiter. But Moshe clearly tells him, bring back a report about the land. Show us its good qualities. And therefore, you need to represent them each tribe. Because Ruben says we're going to be here. Shimon says we're going to be there. Levi, I mean, it's not nowhere, but he saw her. Zvolen, Don, Naftali. Zvolen wants the seashore. And uh, Osher wants the land with oil in it. I mean, each tribe has different needs, has a different view of what's good and bad for it. So you need a representative of each tribe. You have a delegation. You have diplomats, great people that could come back and explain to you exactly what the land is about. Therefore, you're choosing 12 great individuals, Losurasaurs. That's what their mission was. That's what their mission was. Liros Eretz Kananya Dua Dabar. Moshe never thought in terms spy it out. By the way, there is a place where Moshe actually did send spies, I should point out. But it didn't turn into a disaster. Let's find the place where Moshe sent spies. Page 393, Pasuk Lama Beis. After Moshe Rabbeinu conquers and captures the lands of, um, of Sichon, so there were some outlying areas that were still not conquered. Vayishlach Moshe Lirakil Es Yazir. Moshe sends spies to spy out Yazir and its suburbs, and they capture it. They fight it, they capture it, they take it over. So there the word Lirakil is used, Moshe says. And they do their mission, they come back, they do their mission, and everything turns out good. But this parasha Moragun turns into a disaster. Why? Because their mission was never for the purpose of being Moragun. They were sent out as Torim. Moshe Rabbeinu said, we don't need to fight battles in the regular way. That's not what we're all about. God's going to send in the borrow in front of us and it's going to be a rather peaceful takeover. It's not going to even entail much bloodshed. Sephorno says that that was the original plan. The original plan was that Moshe would be the one bringing the Jews in and if Moshe brings the Jews in, it would be a bloodless takeover. I'm not saying necessarily that the Canaanim would be happy about it, but there was going to be a... Again, I don't want to go into any of this right now. This is not my purpose right now to discuss. But the miraculum, the, rather the, the the original intent was Moshe, again, we were, it's not what happened, Moshe died, we were there 40 years in the wilderness, it was a new generation, so history became much different. I, it's like I'm not going to discuss with you right now what the world should have been if other versions would have no, sinned. I'm not asking that. I'm just saying that prior history showed us that when Moshe was leading the people, he raised his hands, he was victorious. So he did go in with bloodshed. Uh, I, I would... 
I would say just the opposite. Moshe raises his hand and he says, Hashem Elohim Lochem Vatem Tachrishun. God will find you. Stay still. Be quiet. You don't need Baragun. You don't need Baragun. We need davening to Hashem, and sometimes you don't even need that. Matitzake Eloi. Moshe goes in, lifts up his rod. This happens, that happens, and the whole thing is over and done with. Vatem Tachrishun. You be still. Hashem Elohim Lochem. You don't need Baragun. You don't need Baragun. Therefore, Moshe never initiated the mission that they were meant to be Miraglim, to spy it out, to find the weak point. That wasn't their point. And therefore, Moshe sends them, it's an Eretz Zobas Cholovitvash. So, Liosam Yoshevo Chotekarofa, Mamailo Mamorid, Hashem Ilochem Lochem. So, really, the whole mission was an unnecessary one to begin with. The land was an Eretz Zobas Cholovitvash. So, God told us. And whether the people are strong or weak doesn't make any difference. Hashem will take care of it. What happened? Apparently they were a little bit weak in their faith and they needed a reassertion and they needed some encouragement. So he sent them and therefore he sent leaders amongst them that they should come back and report the greatness of the land. So the people should feel good to give them a chizuk. So they should continue to follow Hashem. Ooh, then the mission got corrupted. They went as Torah, but they came back as Miraglim. They came back as Miraglim, but they came back as spiritual Miraglim. Physically, they come back saying, yeah, the land is great, and the land looks good, and look at the fruit, and look at the thing, and the people are powerful, they're strong, they'll never be able to conquer it. And they come back, ill of the land saying this is a land that will kill the people and because rather than coming back reporting on they come back with an evil report about the land and the further interpretation they'll never be able to conquer it the exact opposite they reversed the original intent therefore we call them Miraglim because they were sent on a mission to be tar they came back as Miraglim. So we call them Miraglim. And therefore, throughout the Parsha of the mission, Lo Nikru Ki B'Shem Torah, they're always called Torah. Only one place do we find the word Miraglim used, when Moshe repeats to them, that we saw in Sefer Devarim, it says, Vayovoad Nachal Eshkol, when they came to Nachal Eshkol, and they cut the fruit, that's where they changed their whole mission, Vayiraglim also. They became Miraglim. Because this is actually what happened. They did an act of miraglim, and they blew an act of Torah. They were sent Torah. They came back by Iraglu, so they came back, and that's what they did. Okay. That's briefly the concept that we're talking about, the difference between a Torah and a miraglim, which is really the essence of what I wanted to get at. I don't want to go so much into the actual story and the meaning of the psukh. Again, the Malm elaborates on much, much better. But just that you should be able to see the idea in terms of the pshat. They went on a mission to be Tor. They came back Miraglim. Miraglim is to look at the evil. Tor means to look at the good. Why does it change? Is that not Kalash What's What happened over there? That's where they cut the fruit. That's yeah. where they, that was That's their last they stand. That's well, again, Chazal say that they well, also they went off. Well, yeah, that's true. Actually, we'll see shortly 
that they went with a bad attitude as well. Okay, let's 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 take a look at more. The next piece of this puzzle take, we take from the Birchas Peret the Stifler. And the answer again, I don't want to really go so much at the episodes of the Miraculum itself, because we've gone through this many, many times, and the Kashas are being asked constantly over and over again, and we could get off the track. The Pasik refers to them as Kulom Anoshim Roshe B'nai Yisrael Hema. We know they were from the Choshifs, the most distinguished individuals in Klal Yisrael. As it says, Perish Rashi, Kul Anoshim Shebimikra Loshin Chashivusu. They were important, distinguished people. Rashi furthermore adds, Vaisashok Sherem Hayim. When they left, they were still kosher individuals. They were tzaddikim. Yet, we have a contradiction. Because later on, in the Pasuk, they went and they came. Al-Moshe, so why does it say they went and they came? It should be, they, they left 40 days earlier. It took them a 40-day mission. And then the Pasuk refers that they came back. So it should have said, they came back. They came back to Moshe. Yet, the Pasuk repeats, they went and they came. It doesn't make sense. Look at the top of the page. And at the end of the 40 days of touring the land, they returned. They went and they came back to Moshe Aaron. What does the Vayelchu mean? What does the Vayelchu have to mean over here? Thank you. Parents is, says Rashi, Mao Vayelchu lahakish halichosan lebiosan. They went with the same lousy attitude that they came back with. They went, they came with the same bad attitude. Says the stifler, doesn't this contradict the Rashi, which we just learned that when they went, they were still tzaddikim? So it's a contradiction. So the stifler makes the following slight spin on it. When they were chosen, they were kosher. They started off good when they were chosen. Namely, they're going to do it, it won't be a problem, no problem. Immediately, after their chosenness, they became conceited and haughty. And they imagined not merely as informers to scout out the land and to report back. In other words, they were chosen as reporters, to, re- to use modern terminologies. And they came back as op-ed people. They were chosen to be reporters. But they came back as op-ed and they thought, hey, we're the editorial commentators here. Oh, they want our opinion. They want our judgment. You know, sometimes you ask somebody a question, just answer me the question. Oh, one second, I'm already the judge, the jury, I'm already deciding. You want my comments, you want my opinions, you want me to uh, to give an editorial opinion on it. No, 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 that's not what you're, I'm asking you. I want information. All I want is information. You already consider yourself a Hashem person. You're a Balgaita. So they come to this guy, they think that not only are they just messengers and emissaries to report back, but now they're the judges and the ones to make determined rulings and opinions, informed opinion, expert witnesses, as they say, in your opinion, in your expert opinion, what do you think about this and this and this? No, no, you're a witness. 
The whole idea, you're an expert witness. I want your opinion. That's not what they were there. And they come back, they should determine, they should decide whether it makes sense to enter the land or not. Is it possible? Is it doable? Is it worthwhile? And this already began to percolate in their minds as they're going. So they went with the attitude, now, yeah, they were good guys when they were chosen. But immediately upon being chosen and they were elevated, they become a bonkaiva. They become arrogant and conceited. And gaiva takes over. And this happens even before they got there. So th- this eight zeroth that percolated in their minds as soon as they were chosen was there even before Shahulosur. Lakshav Shabiyodam Tolu As if the decision is up to them in Lichlos Lord's Allah. As if they're going to make the decision. Nobody wanted their opinion. Nobody asked them for their editorial comment. Whether they should or shouldn't go. Because this they were already mitzvah. They were guaranteed by Hashem. They were merely there as a confidence boosting measure. Report back what you see. In order that Klal Yisrael should have an idea and a concept what is the land all about? But the heim, the gavos of choshu shenishluch kadei levar ikur inyan biasarets. They thought that their mission was to determine whether it's worthwhile and doable to enter the land. That wasn't their mission. To decide if it's doable. You're, we want you to tell us what you see. Report. Don't tell us whether, in your opinion, it's doable. Because, and therefore. Right, that's what Gaiva is. Gaiva is a replacement of God. Call everybody that has Gavus Halev, that has Gaiva, conceit and arrogance, is a form of Avodazar. Why? Because it's self-worship. And the moment that you're chosen thinking you could make this decision, you have in your own mind replaced God. And notice the way they come back. They finally say, it's impossible. Can't be. Even God can't be. Ultimately, they fell into the into the denial of God's ability. They went, from, and, and it all begins with the guy. They didn't start off thinking God can't do it. But as you start going into the thing and you start guiding, right, you become full of self. And the more you fill yourself, the more you displace God. As the Gemara says, God says, I can't live in one place, in one uh, location, with a Balgaiva, because it's like displacement. It's only one thing fits here. You, either you're full of yourself, or you're full of me, or a little bit of each, but you can never live God, and Gaiva cannot coexist, because Gaiva means I'm full of self, and godliness means a recognition of my insignificance and God's greatness. And therefore, to at the same time think of your greatness and God's greatness, the two concepts don't coexist. So the moment that they began to think in terms of their own personal greatness, they've been displacing God, and therefore when they come back, they are, they'll come to the point of actual denying God's abilities and God's capabilities. And so their whole emuna becomes corrupted, they were promised by God to go, but as soon as they think that their mission is different than what it actually was, 
their whole amuna corrupts. Ki agaivam mekalkeles umachrebes esuamuna. Gaiva corrupts and destroys faith. Rachman Olslan. The chosh mushikru inyak zleitz Israel needs a decision, needs their opinion, needs their interpretation, and needs their expert opinion, and that they will be the ones to determine it. Gaiva is where it begins. The next piece comes from the Limudin and this amplified a little bit with what we just saw from the Steitler. So let's, again, it's going to be a little bit of a review with an added dimension. This is contradicting. This is the way he approaches this contradiction. Look to these three things and you will not come to the hands of an Avera. What does it mean? What are the hands of an Avera? Look at these three things and you will avoid the hands of the Avera. What does that mean? The hands of the Avera mean that's what catches you. The hands of the Avera catch you and chop you. What are those? Midas Rice, the following bad attributes, like the Stipe said. Gaiva, Redifa Harkovit, pursuit of glory, sinus habrius, jealousy and hatred of your fellow man, who could Now, what that basically means is the following. You could be a prince of the people, you could be an officer, a leader, and kosher. You're doing good deeds. The kaim is on mitzvahs, and you're performing all of the mitzvahs. And you're not doing any averes, but but the hands of the avera are inside you. Noticeably, you're not seeing a person do any averes. He's doing mitzvahs, he's doing all the good things, but the hands of the avera already have it. Meaning, what's the second one? Running after COVID. Running after COVID, sinas habrius. Again, there are different Mishnahs that speak about different hands. We're only talking about a couple that lost. These are the hands of the Avera, the Midos, that already have their claws on you. Let's call it the claws of the Avera. They grip you. You're not doing the Avera, but the claws of the Avera already have you in its grip. They already have you in its clutches. And therefore, you're going to change when your situation changes. As your situation changes, all of a sudden, you're going to change. What is the situation that changed? So there's a famous Zayar that's mentioned over here by many of the Mephoshim. The Zayar says that when they were sent on the mission, they discovered through Rachkovs, they were great people, that when they enter the land of Israel, they're going to lose their positions. Whatever positions they held, they're going to lose when they enter the land of Israel. And they will lose their Nesius. When you have a Rachakaitish and you learn the Zayar, you'll find out about it. This is what they had. The truth is, it teaches us another lesson that we've had with Karah. That if you think you're going to be so smart that your Rachakaitish becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. They were right. They lost their position. They died. So what they saw was correct. They just misinterpreted what they saw. Whatever. Furthermore, in last week's parsha. Elder the Nato, they're going around prophesying that Moshe is going to die and Yeshua is going to be the one that's going to bring them in. And Yeshua is one of their colleagues. 
they're not ready to become subservient to Yeshua. And as they're going to lose their positions of prominence, Yeshua is going to take over. One second, they don't want that. They are now motivated with a vested interest to keep the status quo. Because to have the house or the Senate change hands means you're losing all of your, your positions, your committee heads, and all of this kind of thing. They're not ready for that change. They don't want to change. Let's push over the elections. In Israel, it's a power when you think about it. Um, you know, before they had this last election, the Knesset did not vote themselves out, although the majority didn't want what Barak wanted. The state of Israel was in a very precarious state, and it was dangerous. And the overwhelming majority of the Knesset was against Barak. And the safety of the state of Israel was at stake. And they wanted to get rid of Barak, but they did not vote to abolish the Knesset. Although they knew that if they do that, and they have new elections, you'll have, you'll have a, whole, a whole unity. Instead of this national unity government they had the hodgepodge put together, they would have had normal elections, and you would have had a very, very solid-based government that Sharon would have had. They wanted to get rid of Barak and replace him with Sharon, but they all abolish themselves to, to, to abolish the Knesset. And everybody knew the reason for that. It wasn't even a secret. It was no secret. Every newspaper wrote about this. Why? Because each person that was sitting in a seat was afraid he's going to lose that seat. So there's no way that they're going to abolish, they're going to vote to abolish the Knesset when they know that they might lose their seats. But, but the country's in danger. And you know that's exactly what you have to do. Because what's the point? You're getting rid of Barack because you don't like it. Three quarters of the Knesset was already in opposition. Right? If you remember, go back to February of this past year. Barack was leading a minority government. There was only 25, 30 members that were in the coalition. That means two-thirds to three-quarters of the Knesset was against it. So they wanted to get rid of it and have a new government. But, and the normal way would have been to abolish the whole government. Start again. You remember, Jerry, you were just there this year. Right? And they wanted to get rid of Barack. And they voted Sharon in. But they couldn't bring themselves to abolish the Knesset because of their own personal perks. The country's in danger. That's how far vested interests of leadership keep a person. That day of air, all of a sudden the situation changes. You don't care. The country will go down the tubes. There was terrorism constantly. And you're talking about danger that's clear and present that everybody understood. Not one Knesset member, except maybe a few of them, was willing to abolish knowing that they might lose their seats because of their positions of power. Sapel. I remember, I remember what anybody that remembers what the situation was in January, February could verify exactly what I'm saying, right? Jerry, you were there. It was a disaster. Why? Because of your position. Now the Nisim are aware that they're gonna lose their positions. And Moshe's gonna die. And there's going to be a new government that's going to be headed by Yoshua, out of all people, one of their minor junior colleagues. And they're going to have to be subservient to him because they're losing their positions. They don't want it. They don't want out of this situation. I, Klali, saw this and disaster. They don't care about disaster. They care about their position. Sapella. That's Gaiva. That's Gaiva. They felt that they're going to be subjected and subservient to Yoshua a disciple of my, of Moshe, a Zorah Shalkina, the fires of envy, the hero Nechusam the 
to lose their power, borrow and burden them. They wanted power and they were envious. And therefore, both statements of Rashi are true simultaneously. It's true that when they were chosen to their positions, they were tzaddikim because they hadn't yet sinned. And they were not sinning yet. But immediately, they were already in the hands of the Avera. And therefore, later on, when the opportunity came, they changed. And therefore, we say, they went and came back with the same bad attitude because they were in the clutches and the grips of the claws of the Avera. They didn't do any past bad deeds. They were great, but nevertheless, by Yelchu, by they came back the Eitzorah, they went the Eitzorah because they were already in the grips and the clutches of the Midos that were going to cause them to do this. And take a look what it means to be in the clutches and the grips of the Avera. How it caused such catastrophes and tragedies to all of Klal Yisrael. Hashem from the clutches of the Avera. And that's why they saw what they wanted to see. They saw bad because they wanted to see bad. They reported bad because they wanted to see bad. And therefore the Torah at the end of the parsha tells us what we saw. The heart lusts. And the eyes will see what the heart lusts and wants it to see. You're going to see what your heart tells you to see. And if the clutches of the Avera are in your heart, you're going to see that. They're the miraculum of your body. Because once you're in the grips of the Avera, you're going to see what you want to see. And you're going to report back what you want to report back. This is a very, very powerful lesson today. And I want to get to it. So therefore the heart wants to see because of the kaiser. So they have a vested interest not to go even the reports is always with a spin. Whatever they see, they see with a spin. Because they don't want to lose their position. So everything becomes a confirmation of that. This is no good, that's no good, this is no good, it doesn't pay to go. Why? Because they had a vested interest. They wanted to stay put. They wanted to maintain the status quo. They wanted to retain their positions. So whatever they're going to see is going to tell them, don't go. They see this, they see that, they come back with the interpretation. We can't go. It doesn't pay to go. It's not good to go. We shouldn't go. It's not, it's not possible. It's not doable. It's not. Why? Because they had a vested interest that told them that's what you want to see. It's spin. And this is an, a, a, a crucial message nowadays. Because when we talk about, if you want to identify today's age, we're living in the age of miraculous. And you think I'm just saying that facetiously. We're in the Miraculum Age. And I'll prove to you that we're in the Miraculum Age. Because how is this age referred to in general society? We're living in the Information Age. We're constantly inundated and surrounded by information. No, we're not surrounded by information. We're surrounded by Miraculum. Because all the information that you're getting comes with a spin. Whatever it is. Magazines, books, movies, entertainment, the whole entertainment industry is just to convey messages. And all newspaper reporters are giving a spin. You know the way they're reporting about Israel. So what are we living in? Are we living in an age of information? Yeah. But the whole thing is, 
We're living in an age of miraculous. We're not living in an age of information. We're living in, because you're inundated with constant information. That's what it's referred to as the information age. But if you examine all the information that you read, even what's written as reports is really editorial comments. Besides the fact that we're constantly reading op-ed pieces and editorials, everything you read is with a spin. CNN is with a spin. Uh, MSNBC is with a spin, whether you get on the internet or whatever it is, the New York Times is with a spin, all the reporters, every byline. If it's Deborah Sontag reporting something, if it's whoever it is, it's all with spin. Everybody. We're living in an age of spin, miraculous. And probably what Yosef tells his brothers is one of the best examples of this. He's telling his brothers, what's he telling his brothers? You guys are miraculous. You're coming Liros as Erebus Oretz. Erebus Oretz. What Yosef is telling them is that everything that you ever saw about me was misinterpreted in a bad way. Was misinterpreted in a bad way. In fact, it's, you know, it, it's uncanny how, how um, up-to-date this concept is about who's the victim and who's the victimizer. If you look in, uh, in Parshas by Yeshev, the brothers see Yosef coming at them, and this is Yosef coming, and uh, the brothers say, uh, what's the Pusik? Page 91. You wrote it? Vayiru also me before he got near them, Vayisnaklu also lahamiso. And they conspired him to kill him. Says the Sforno, it wasn't that they conspired against Yosef to kill him, but they viewed him as a conspirator against them. The brothers felt they were the victims, and Yosef was the Rodeh. Who's the Rodeh? Who's the Nirdah? They saw themselves as the victims. They saw themselves as the victims, and Yosef was the one that's conspiring and usurping against them. Now, what happens when they come and Yosef tells them, Miraglim them. You guys are really Miraglim. And all of a sudden they come back to their father and they say, we don't know what's going on. What do we say before we quoted the Pesukim over there? That um, they come back and they tell their father, We're innocent guys and this guy is victimizing us again. He speaks harshly and he's oppressing us. And we said, we're nice guys. We're not the Miraglim. What are you oppressing us? Why are you dealing so harshly? They're the ones that dealt harshly with Yosef. But they see the world in a different light. The Arab stone thrower, the innocent victim. Why are you striking back at them constantly? I mean, isn't that what we're living in? We're living in a, in a society where the media is constantly reporting, look how the Jews are oppressing the Arabs. They're striking back at them constantly. He hit me back first. You know, that's my kids are, right? Like, he hit me back first. That's the whole need. But like reverse, a reverse spin of everything. And we're inundated with that constantly. This is the most obvious example that we're all familiar with. But everything else is miraglin, miraglin, and more miraglin. So there are different layers and levels of miraglin. Your eyes and your heart are also miraculous. 
they're the ones that are telling you what to do, and they're miraculous, they're looking at everything, and they're miraculous. But we're living in an age of information, it's called the information age, but it's not the information age that we're living in, we're living in the miraculous age. We're living in an age of miraculous, because all the information that we're getting is miraculous type information. Whatever you read, there's nothing that you don't read that's not miraculous. Whether it's the New York Times, or the New York Post, or it's Time Magazine, or it's the news reports on television, or it's CNN, or it's the radio, or it's CBS, we're flooded, flooded, constantly inundated with miraculous. Everywhere you go, you go to your psychotherapist, you go to your friend, they tell you stories about this. We're always living with information. Everything that we do, all our decisions in life are based on information that we're receiving. And what we perceive ourselves. So yourself, you have a heart and eyes. They're your own personal miraculous. But then you listen to your friends and your colleagues and in shul and your, all the people, this, that. You're being constantly giving in from, being given information. And the information that you're being given is miraculous style information. Then you read the newspapers and you're getting more miraculous fed information. You turn on the radio as you're driving, you're hearing more miraculous information. You go home and you turn on the television or your computer and you're being flooded with a constant barrage of miraculous information. So what are we living in? An age of information? We're living in an age of miraculous. Not bosures soarets, but miraculous. That's what we're living in. And they come across as losasur, they come across as tur horets. But as Rashi says, we're living in an age of spin. The truth is, is I found a very palatable Balatur that if you that when Moshe Rabbeinu, when Yosef was dialoguing with the tribes, what he was actually telling them was, "You guys are Miragla, not me." Says the Balatur. Why? Because take a look, my descendant is Yoshua, who was not part of the miracle. He was not part of the miracle. So Yosef is telling them, I'm clean. I'm coming with clean hands. You guys are coming with dirty hands because miracle. Comes Yehuda and responds to them, no. You're just as bad as us. Lo hoyinu miracle. Or in the words of uh, Yehuda back to Yosef. He was the spokesperson for all of them. When, when he accused them of being Miraglim, says the Balaturim that by Yomurai love, Yehuda the spokesperson says, Lo Adoni. Um, he says, Lo Hoyu Avodecha Miraglim. We were not past tense. Miraglim, what does that mean, past tense? So he says, the gematria of the word Lo Hoyu is the gematria of Kolev. He was also not a spy. He was an all stuff for the Miraglim. So Yehuda is saying, one, one second. I also have a descendant that's not a Miraglim by the name of Kolev. Yosef is saying, in effect, you're a Miraglim, I'm not. Because my descendant is Yeshua. Yehuda is saying, you're not in any way any better than us because one of your descendants, in fact, if you look in the parasha, some of the Mephorshim point out that it goes through the tribes. It says, Lamate Ruvain, Lamate Shimon, Lamate Yehuda, Kolev Ben Yifuda. Yifuda. Then it says, Lamate Yosef Lumatei Menashe Gadi Ben Susi. Take a look at page 368. Page 368. Now, if you look on page 368, you find something very peculiar. 
throughout the Torah, whenever it identified the tribe of Yosef, it identified the tribe of Yosef with the tribe of Ephraim as being the prime one. Here, you get page on Pesach Cheslematei Ephraim Hoshea Bindur. And it's not identifying the tribe of Ephraim with Yosef. But in Pesach Yudalov, it says, Lemate Yosef, Lemate Menashe, Gadi Ben Susi. Why is Yosef not mentioned in Pesach Ches with Ephraim where he's usually mentioned? And Ephraim is mentioned without Yosef. Then in Pesach Yudalov, Lemate Yosef, Lemate Menashe, Gadi Ben Susi. Why is Yosef all of a sudden being mentioned with the tribe of Menashe? Teretz says Menashe was still part of the Miraculous. And Ephraim was not. Yosef was also guilty of the exact same sin as the Miraglim. How do we know that? In the beginning of Parshas Vayeshev, the brothers are shepherds, and Yosef is called a Nar, on page 90, Vayove Yosef as the Bosom Ro Elaviyev, and Yosef is bringing back the Dibor Ro of his brothers to his father. That's exactly what the sin of the Miraglim was that we have on page 370. Right? So they are guilty of Lush and Hara, the Miraglim. Yosef, you also brought back everything with a bad sin. Because you interpreted everything that we did in a bad way. That's exactly what Yosef did. He saw what the brothers did, and he comes back in a bad interpretation of Lush and Hara. So Yosef, you're also guilty. Now, the brothers definitely were guiltier and had dirtier hands and misinterpreted everything that Yosef did in his dreams because they saw his dreams as usurpation. So there's no question that they saw oh, he's having dreams and he's trying to be this and that. So Yosef is having a dialogue with them. You guys are Miraglim, not me. You're Miraglim and that's what leads to Miraglim because you misinterpret everything I said. You see everything in a bad way. Not me. My descendant is Yoshua. I'm a good guy comes Yehuda and says, one second. We also have a good guy. My descendant is Kolev ben Yefuna and the gematria of Lohoyu is Kolev. Lohoyu avodech That's true. Lohoyu avodech It's a bad tense to use. It's the wrong tense. Past tense. But, it, but the gematria is the same. Lohoyu is the gematria of Kolev. Lohoyu avodech He's not a miracle. My descendant. I, the rest of us are, but you also are being identified with Gadi ben Sosu, ben, ben, ben Susi. Ben, uh, Gadi ben Susi. Right? Yehuda is the only one who is 100%. I guess, right, but Yehuda was with the other brothers. So you're talking about the 10 brothers, they were Miraglim against Yosef, Diborah. And Yosef is telling him and accusing him correctly. Says Yehuda, we also have good my descendants, and you, one of your descendants, you're right, but one of them isn't as well either. So therefore, it comes out that Yosef had a descendant that was not a Miraglim, and Yehuda had a descendant from both factions. It's interesting, though, that the amount of Miraglim that were Miraglim were ten. And the Pasuk clearly refers to the ten brothers of Yosef coming with different, also Miraglim. Yosef said, you ten are Miraglim. But Yosef was really telling them something which becomes historically true. Because the essence of Miraglim that led to the Chorban, the Tisha Bob, that was the first time, 
as well as all the ultimate Tishabovs, is the Miraglin concept amongst each other. That we view each other with the twisted, you know, kibapum horvish, as they say, with the nose, you kill somebody. Make a nose, right? Dibora, Motsie Dibasaoras. The first Tishabov becomes a precursor of all Tishabovs. And all Tishabovs go back to that first fight between Yosef and his brothers, and he says he identifies the whole thing miracle. That's the unfortunate nature of what we're living in. We amongst ourselves are miraculous to one another. And Yosef says this is going to be the cause of the Chorban for all time. The cause of the Chorban is miraculous. That's what happens in this week's parsha. Miraculous becomes the first Tishbub. And Yosef already said to his ten brothers, we're miraculous. And the brothers answered back, you also. You also. There's only one brother that was clean from the whole thing that was Binyamin, which is why the base of Nikdosh and the Shechina is on his portion. Because he's the only one that was clean from the whole thing. But we're all Miraglim. So therefore it goes back to the beginning of history. It goes back to Yosef and his brothers. And each one accuses the other by Snakwa of Hamiso. You're a miracle. You're a miracle. Each one is moitzi diva and misinterpreting and misrepresenting the other. Isn't the age of spin always been with the world? Probably. Probably. That's correct. It's true and the Pasha already says it. All I'm saying is that when everybody says, oh, we're living in the information superhighway and we're living in the age of information, all it means is that you multiply hundredfold the amount of miraculous life we're living in. That's what I'm saying. Yes, miraculous has been with us throughout history. But when we say we're living in the information age, we're getting a lot of information. What does that mean? Newspapers, magazines, electronic media, television, radio, it's all spin. It's all miraculous. Here comes another miraculous and coming on that And it amplifies. And we're living with us. We're living in miraculous. Miracle Mage. Now, let's take a look at the Kaimitz Hamincha on the, on the upper left. And then hopefully we'll be able to get to Sai too shortly. We'll go through this quickly. Rav Chanai Chenech Erentroy, a distant relative of mine. He was the Rav Roshi in Munich, Germany. No, no, yeah, well, it comes from that, but this happened to me. He was Rav Roshi, he was in Munich, Germany. Chanoch Henoch Erentroy. The Erentroy family. Actually, he was, I think, called Dr. Rabbi, uh, whatever. But we're not going to go into that. I leave that out. Everybody has a different spin on things. Yeah, actually, I, I'll point out now, since you mentioned it, I'll give you a little bit of nachas here. So why does Moshe Rabbeinu daven on behalf of Yeshua and nobody else? Essentially, that's where else we have this idea. Moshe calls Yehoshua. Why is he calling him Yehoshua? Says Rashi. He's davening. You need an extra boost. You need an extra boost from Hashem. Hashem should save you from the council of the miracle. That's essentially what Atas miracle means this counsel to look at things in a negative way. You need salvation from that. From, this, from the counsel of the spies. Why Yoshua? Why not Kolei? 
Why not the other ones? Why Yahushua? <coughs> There's a very interesting shot on this. I'm going to just tell you one shot now. Hopefully we'll get back to more shots later. But i got to give Harry a little bit of nachas. A little bit of nachas we got to give Harry also. What did we just say? That the spies had Ruach HaKodesh and they saw that they're going to lose their position. So they were motivated. They were motivated to stay. That's why they put it back. Why? What motivated them was the Gaiva that they wanted to stay in the Midbar and retain the status quo. Because they knew that they were going to lose their position. Yeah. So therefore everything was seen wrong. What about Yoshua? Well, we just said Yoshua, everybody already knew that Moshe is going to die and Yoshua is going to bring him in the land of Israel. So what was Yoshua's motivation? To enter or to not enter? To what? To enter. Wrong, Richard's right. To not enter. Why? He would have been anyway. No. What did we just have in last week's parsha? El doesn't made on the going around telling everybody Moshe is going to die and Yeshua is going to bring the people in. And what did Yeshua say? Adoni Moshe Kloim. Lock them up. I don't want to change. You're my Rebbe. Yeshua was a tremendous honor. He wanted to stay with his status quo even more than anybody else, but he had a full Yetzir heart. Everybody else had a Yetzir heart. They didn't want to lose their position. Yeshua was the only one that had a pure motivation to change your mind to keep things the status quo. But if he comes back and he says, you know what, let's stay like this, it means that we're going to stay like this and Moshe Rabbeinu is going to be our leader forever. Because the Nebuah was that when we enter the land of Israel, my Rebbe is dead. My Rebbe dies and I take over. I don't want that. Moshe is my Rebbe. And in last week's Pasha, we just had this. Uh, uh, you know, just last week, the last part of last Pasha is by Isnabu Bamachna, by Yoratanar, by Yagid, Lemoshe, Elod, Mel, Isnabu Machna, by Yomer Yeshua, Benun, Mishoreth, Moshe. The Talmud, the prime disciple of Moshe. Mi Bukhura, from his Bachur. He's from the Talmud. He's a chosid of Moshe Rabbeinu the Rebbe. Yomer, I don't need Moshe, Rebbe, Moshe, Kloim, lock them up. Moshe says, don't worry about it. Halavai. Yeshua doesn't want also Yeshua now is being chosen to be a miracle and they're all coming back saying we can't enter we can't enter Moshe has to even spoil Yeshua you're in the biggest danger because you have a Fumi Yetzirah they have a Yetzirah from Gaivin but a Fumi Yetzirah you can never work against that's the hardest one but you should know that you're going to be putting a spin and you're not going to give an honest report because you have a vested interest not a vested interest for power a from a vested interest and therefore, Hashem had to save you from the Atas Naragun because you also have a danger. Let's take a look at the Koyimut Samincha. And again, he draws the connection between the beginning and the end of the Parsha. Inyin Mishutu Vlaschos HaParsha Ulsoifa with the words Vayisuru as it says in the Parsha of Tzitzis Loisasura Achrei Levavchem Again, I'm going to go through this as quickly as possible because I won't even read all the words. It's kind of the Torah is connecting it similar to Gzair Shava, Losasuru, and Vyasuru. As if to say, from the midst of Tzitzis, we learn some Musr regarding the flaw and the downfall of the Miraglim and their sin. What is this? Next paragraph. What was the sin of the Miraglim? And he asks here, finally... Eddie's question, but again, I don't want to get so much into it, then only what's relevant, because we're learning some Musr today, and not just facts. They were sent the Ragulasaurus, which is something which was always done in all generations. Now, 
wasn't their job to give an honest report of what they see? Shouldn't they come back and convey that which they accumulated and they saw, which is what they, what they saw in their scouting? Did they not do this? Didn't they fulfill their mission? And we know that they're not supposed to come back and whitewash and give a whitewash report. They saw a powerful nation. Well, they have to report back accordingly. They came back saying that the cities are walled and fortified and tall and etc. I mean, that's the fact. It won't be easy to conquer them. That's the fact. They have to tell them that. It might not be comfortable to hear, but you got to hear it anyway. Their mission was not to whitewash. Their job was to report back that which they see and not to whitewash anything, even if it's uncomfortable. Tell me the truth. Don't cover up the facts, whether it's comfortable or not. If that's the case, what was their sin? Next paragraph. Terences. The Miraculum fulfill their mission as long as they're fulfilling the mission there's no tightness of them it's only when they deviated from their original task and they took upon themselves the right to make determinations and conclusions and judgments to come to conclusions that was not their mission that is the mission of the general the mission of the spy even if you're a spy is to report back and let the officers and their meeting and the chief of staff, whatever it is, let them make the decision as to whether it's doable or not. Truth is only the leader that has all the facts in front of him and knows that which you don't know, only he's capable of making the right decision. It's only the general and the chief of staff and the officers and their meetings that know more than you know, they're the ones empowered to make the decision. It's their job. They're the ones in charge of the war. He could judge all of the different facts that you're bringing in with all the other associated facts. In other words, the Miraglim are scouts or spies or whatever to collect information. Their job and task is to bring the information that they collect to the leadership. And the they're not empowered to, to, it's not their job to encroach on the domain of the leader. But they didn't do that. They decided. And they said, And they told us to the people, we cannot enter the land. Because they are stronger and mightier than us. This is the point where they deviated from their task. Obviously, even if they were spies, they're supposed to go to what they call, what they call, um, when they, um, when they brief, a debriefing, right. They're supposed to go to a debriefing meeting and be debriefed. Not to go announce to the whole people all that they saw and give their interpretation and their conclusions. That's where they deviated. They came back and they told all the people. Therefore, they had a terrible sin. Their sin was one of decision and misinforming everyone of their decision. And therefore they panicked the people, they weakened the people, they caused, the, uh, uh, they caused them to, they melted their hearts, and they caused the people to lose confidence. 
This was a terrible sin. The sin of the people also was not hearing the report and believing the report, but believing the conclusions of the report. They trusted the Miraculum's decision over Moshe. That's what happened. The Miraculum report, the Miraculum then interprets, they place a spin on it, they give editorial comments, none of this they were supposed to do, and they then make a determination and a conclusion based on their judgment. And the people accepted what they saw, they accepted their report, they accepted their interpretation, they also accepted their judgment. They had no right to accept the judgment of the Miraculum either. That was their sin. They took upon themselves to believe the judgment of the Miraculum. They took upon themselves the mantle of decision-making without permission. And the people, rather than trusting Moshe, went along with the mutiny of the spies making these decisions. Therefore, they deserve the punishment of the 40 years in the wilderness. Okay. This is, in a nutshell, an answer to Eddie's question. Does this answer your question now better than we answered before? I thought I didn't want to get into it because... But this basically answers the question of the sin of the miraculum and the people in a nutshell in terms of the episode itself. However, let's now take the Musa out of this. What we learn from this is not only the big events of life that deal with the national situation, but it has to do with our daily life and all of the specifics that happen as they say. In the small world of our lives, you know, everybody always jokes around, I leave my wife with all the little decisions, I do the big decisions, I make decisions of war and peace, she decides where we're going to live, where to send the kids to school. The, the, the bottom line is that big decisions are on a national level, your own personal decisions are your own private battles that people have to make. Those day-to-day -day decisions and battles, you don't leave up to Miraglam either whether it's your wife or whether it's yourself or whether it's your eyes and heart, don't leave those personal decisions up to Miraglam either. That's part of the message. It's not only the big decisions that the generals have to worry about. You have an internal general, but you also have spies. Don't let the spies make the decision. That's the lesson of the Miraglam. The Miraglam were on a national level. You on a personal level have the exact same thing. You have your daily battles. You know, it's not only that I decide the big things war and peace, my wife decides the little things, the little battles. No, these are little battles. But to you, they're important. And who's going to make the decision on these little battles? Will it be the general? Will it be the officers, the chief of staff, the people that are empowered? Or is it going to be the miracle that were meant to collect information and convey information? Are they going to become the judges and the deciders and the generals that make the decisions? They're not supposed to be. Now, let's talk about the human being. Who are his generals? Who are his emissaries? Who are his spies? That's what the end of the parsha is about. Your own personal little battle with life. The Yetzir Horror. It's a battle that you battle against. And how do you battle against this enemy? Every human being in his soul has many, many powers many, many officers and soldiers, etc. It's a battle, and therefore you have an army, and you have your soldiers. There's many, and you have a battle against all kinds of things. 
you have lusts and you have desires and you have emotions and you have feelings you have all of these things and you have seichel and you have logic you have all of these things going percolating in your own body in your own mind you have all of these these powers taivas, yetzer, lust, desire some are meant to be in control the rulers others are meant to be ruled over and they're just foot soldiers they're emissaries they're the low guys they're the scouts they're the spies some are high and lofty and great some are of lower stature not everything in you is great and noble the mistake that we have nowadays is that they try to tell you every emotion that you ever have every feeling you ever have it's great no validate validate all your feelings make everybody equal make a democracy of all your emotions that's what we're living in an age of democracy and what are they always telling you democratize your feelings that means every single feeling that you have deserves validation and legitimacy or they sometimes tell you that that which you should have good ones they, they, they tell you that's what you're supposed to subjugate <laughs> and that's what you normally repress that the Torah tells us yeah. that's what you gotta let loose okay. nowadays they also tell you, you know, just recently they had a uh, it was yesterday a, a decision about education that they're gonna withhold funding from schools that, with, that don't let Boy Scouts meet by them because the Boy Scouts are against homosexuals and the gay community is crying you're homophobic why? Because you're not repressing the Boy Scouts. Basically, you're just giving them freedom to meet over there. But unless you go to our agenda and repress anti-homosexuality, you're a homophobe. Is what they're saying. Rather than say, hey, live and let, let everybody be equal. So they're trying to make unequal certain things. And the equality of all feelings, they don't even accept. They're saying these feelings are legitimate and these feelings are not. Which ones? Well, the Torah feelings are illegitimate. And the anti-Torah feelings are the only ones that are legitimate. They're not even going with democracy. It's becoming a dictatorship of anti-Torah feelings. But that's already how far we've already come where you have, that we know all democracies end up in dictatorships. All the people advocating democracy are basically advocating dictatorship. Communism is not about everybody being of equal stature in society. It's about some people being more equal than others. That's exactly what we're going through. But even if we go with democracy, so-called the legitimizing of all feelings and emotions, we know that's not true. Not every feeling should be given the same credence and the same validation and the same legitimacy. But who makes the decision of which feelings, yeah, which feelings not? Which emotions are good and which emotions are bad? Yes, we trust them. The word good and bad have become dirty words nowadays. What do you mean a good emotion and a bad emotion? Go to any shrink. I mean, most of them at least. They will not allow you to say this is a good feeling or a bad feeling. Feelings are feelings. They're there. You have them. Good feelings, bad feelings, good emotions, bad emotions. We got to validate all of them. I'm saying it's worse than that. What we call bad, they call good. What we call good, they call bad. They use different terminologies, but that's the bottom line. The bottom line is that what we call good, they call bad, and what we call bad, they call good, and therefore they're dictators as well, even worse so. The dictatorship of the left. You know, the what, tyranny of the uh, proletariat, or whatever they call it over there, right? That's what communism was all about. That uh, it was a bourgeois dictatorship. Whatever it is, it's a dictatorship also. 
But the bottom line is that every human being is composed of many, many emotions and characteristics. Some are greater, some are less. Some are meant to be rulers, others are meant to be ruled over. Some are great, some are small. All of these emotions, all of these feelings, all of these character traits have a place. They all have a place. They are all needed, they're all good for you, and they're all healthy. They're all good and healthy as long as they stay in their boundaries. As long as they know their limitations and they stay where they belong in check. And as long as, furthermore, as long as each of them listens to the ruler of them all. Each one has its purpose and its goal and its function as long as they're all listening to the general. The rules over the body and the nefesh, which is what? Your intellect, your neshama. That has to rule over everything. That's your intellect. Your mind is supposed to be composed of as we daven in the Shemon Esrei. They get the great enlightenment, the light of the great enlightenment of the Torah. That's what you learn Torah with. It engages your mind. Torah is there to enlighten your mind. And therefore, what we're saying over here is not the negation of feelings. We're not negating the emotions that they're bad and they shouldn't exist. They're all needed. Like every soldier in the army is needed. Your body is, a, is an army with battalions and officers and different levels of officers. And each has a function. There is the infantry, there's the artillery corps, there's an air force, there's a navy, there's the marines. They're all needed, there's no question about it. But there is one chief of staff. There's one, call, uh, what do they call the, the, the top general? Chief of staff, another word for it. No, that's five star general. What do they call the guy? Well, what, what, what's, uh, uh, he's called the... Um, five star general. Yeah. No, no, it's not chairman. General of the army. General of the army, no. Joint, joint chief of staff, the chief of staff. Well, during the uh, Gulf War, Schwarzkopf was called what? And Powell was uh, called something else? Commander-in-Chief. Commander-in-Chief, that's the president. The president. That's the president, okay. There's a commander-in-chief, then there is the uh, head of the Joint Chief of Staff, and then there's the Supreme General, whatever you want to call different battles, but there's a hierarchy. The point is there's a hierarchy. Your body is composed of a hierarchy. And there's one commander-in-chief. And that's the Moach, the mind, the day of being of a Haskell, which gets its light directly from the Torah. And that has to be the supreme ruler of deciding everything. So we're not negating emotions, and we're not denying their existence, or advocating their abolition, merely that they should be controlled. That's all. It should be controlled by the general, and it should all be under the domain of the general. It's not a democracy. It's a war, it's a battle, it's an army. It's interesting, even in the democracy that we're living in, everybody knows the army is not a democracy. There you obey orders. So your life is to be modeled after an army. Not after a democracy, but after an army. And there's nothing wrong with accepting the fact and realizing 
that an army is led with leadership. There are leaders to it. There are captains and officers and generals and chiefs of staff and all the way up to the commander-in-chief of every army. And that's what your life is. Your life is a battle and you're out there in the world fighting the great battle and therefore you yourself and your family by extension, but you yourself personally, is an army. And all of your different emotions and lusts and desires have their place and belong and should be there as long as it's ruled by the general. That's the important thing to realize. Therefore, in this Olam HaKotan, in this small world of the human being, we also sometimes send out there's a place for them. And we send them out, look around, scout out the land, look at the physical world. Leroy says, so or it's a Is it good? Is it bad? Is it lean? Is it prosperous? And therefore we use our senses. We use our five senses. And through the five senses we obtain information. We collect information, right? Which was the task of the Miraglum. Collect information. Collect information. And therefore through our Hushim, we know our surroundings and it may informs us of the world that we're living in. And therefore they are the Torim of the body. Now, what are they supposed to do? What are they supposed to do with this information? They're supposed to bring it to the general. You collect the information and then you get debriefed in a debriefing session by the general. Who is the general? The Seichel. As long as everybody does what they do, there's a function and a place for all feelings and emotions and they're doing their job and they're doing their task. And then it's wonderful. And it's beneficial to us. However, if you give carte blanche and free reign to the senses and you tell the Miraglim you make the decisions and you do whatever you want, we're living in a complete democracy rather than the hierarchy of an army, but you're allowing your senses to make the decisions and you're saying all senses are equal and all are equally justified and all feelings and emotions are meant to be validated as they say nowadays. And let's fulfill all of those things. Then you have chaos and anarchy. Then you're going to go down into doom and catastrophe. Because your senses perceive good and evil with their vested interest, like the spies, as we discussed before the Miraglim were all about. And they're not judged according to the right judgment, the Eir Haruchni. A person that learns Torah and follows Torah decisions keeps in check through his mind the right decision-making process where you go to someone that does. That's also a possibility. So you go to someone who doesn't mislead. And no, nobody's perfect. That's correct because everyone has vested interests as we saw from the Raghun. But the idea is there. The idea is we have to understand that it's supposed to be shoyled to rule and to weigh the decisions of what's good and what's bad based on true values of goodness and bad. Therefore, when we let the judgment be made by the actual senses alone, they lie and misinform. Not everything that looks beautiful to the eye 
is necessarily good for you. And therefore all the impact that the senses have in terms of making the decision are supposed to be given over the decision that should be critical analysis by the Seichel. All this information is supposed to be debriefed by the Seichel and it should be then critically analyzed by the Seichel to make the right decisions based on Torah and everything else. You then make the choices of Torah and you avoid the evil. If you follow the eyes and the heart, then you become blinded and we're back to the sin of the miraculous. That's why the Torah gave us the mitzvah of tzitzis. To remind us constantly of what's above us. As we've discussed many times, you look up. You look at the blue and this and that, and you're looking constantly up. And by the tzitzis, it reminds us that all of our things are bound with 613 mitzvahs that have to come to our seichel, all the data and the information that we receive through this great misinformation age that we live in for our minds to decide this then connects the beginning of the Pasha with the end of the Pasha look at the tzitzis and remember as Rashi says that the miraculous what we say in the beginning the word the difference between a tor and a miraculous is tor looks for the good and miraculous looks for the bad that's the difference. A Torah looks for good, a miracle looks for bad. But Rashi says, Loisasuru achrei levavchem comes from Kamoimi Tur Horas. And then immediately Rashi says, Hoinaim baleidim miraglum shalaguf. Terence says that if you leave the decision to your heart and to your, and to your eyes to decide what's good for you, Loisasuru achrei levavchem achrei nechem. Don't let your heart and your ma and your eyes be the deciders like the miracle were to decide what's good for you and what's bad for you. Because your mind, because your heart and your eyes themselves are miraculous. What they seek out as good is not necessarily good for you. Don't let them make the decisions. Lososuru, what they see as being tor, as being good, they're the miracle. And if you allow them to be the deciders and you sinned the same way that the miraculous, that Claudius will sin with the miraculous, where the miraculous took upon themselves a decision making process, they told the people and the people followed the miraculous decision rather than by Shurabayna's decision. Therefore, if you look exactly as to what happened on the national level in the episode of the spies, you see what each person goes through every single day, and that's why you have to wear tzitzis. The Miraglim were given a task. Collect information. They were given a task. Before I talk about what the information was, this, that information, whatever it is, Miraglim do have a function. And later on, Masha Bedev did send Miraglim, Yeshua sent Miraglim. There are Miraglim. That wasn't their task. They corrupted their task. That's a separate issue. But whatever their task is, it was report back with information. Go to the general. Go to the officers. Become debriefed. Let your information become evaluated critically by the generals and the commander-in-chief. He makes the decision as to what to do. The miracle not only corrupted their decision, the miracle not only corrupted their decision, but what they did was they made the decision, they informed the people of the decision, 
and chaos and anarchy occurred because there was no hierarchy of there was no hierarchy of decision making process. Now you as a human being are your own army and your own soldiers. And each of your character traits and characteristics and lusts and desires and emotions and feelings are all part of this great vast army fighting a battle. Use all of your emotions. Use all of everything that you have. But there's a general. And don't let your battles be fought and decided by your morality. So when you go to the shrink and he tells you, oh yeah, that feeling, that emotion, validate it. Validate it. It's all good. Basically, what we're saying is that rather than having an army, have a democracy in an army. Could you imagine if you have a democracy in an army? That there's a general, and there's a colonel, and there's a captain, and there's a lieutenant, and there's a corporal, and a sergeant, and then there's the privates, and oh, well, what's the side if we're going to do that? Everybody makes their decisions. You don't have an army anymore. You all have one vote. Right. All oh, so everybody has one vote. Could you imagine the chaos and the anarchy? There's no battle. Life is a battle. Life is a struggle. Life is a war. And you are an army. But in the army, every part of you has its task and its function. There's no democracy here. There's no validating every single thing you think. Not every thought you have is good. Not every emotion you have is good. You should have emotions and you should have feelings and thoughts. Keep them in check. The general decides. If you don't, that's the sin of the miracle. So the parsha ends on a personal note that which the Miraglim had as a general calamity was a general calamity for Gans Klaalisra and as we said nowadays we're living in a Miraglim age we're not living in an information age the age of information we're living in a misinformation age every single thing we're inundated constantly we're barraged we're deluged with what? more and more information but it's not information we're deluged with we're deluged with misinformation with spin. There is no such thing as a reporter. Everybody's an op-ed. Everybody's an editorial. Everybody makes decisions. And therefore, whatever you read, the print media, the newspapers, the magazines, the electronic media, the radio, the television, the computers, the internet, everything, you're deluged and barraged with what? Not information. Misinformation. You're deluged with miracles. We're living in the age of miracles. There was what they called the industrial age and the machine age. Now they refer to our age as the information age. I think we could call the misinformation age the miraglum age. And there are two lessons to the miraglum. One is in terms of the communities that we live in that were deluged and inundated by miraglum misinformation. The other is on a personal level, the lesson of the miraglum, that each and every one of us is an army. And we have miraglim, and we have to control those miraglim to merely inform us, but not to decide for us, otherwise we fall into the trap and the sin of the miraglim.